stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, clearly the year 2020 is going to be historic for many reasons, but what's unfolding this week is another example of that and and one that should be uh, not overlooked. Uh, It was supposed to be 50 years uh, of autonomy for Hong Kong starting in 1997 when control was handed over from the British to the Chinese. It is just over 20 years now, and uh, that autonomy, that democracy, appears to be coming to a very sudden end this week as a result of this so-called national security law that's being imposed on Hong Kong. And those details are emerging, and it's just as draconian as many feared, that it certainly does appear to be an end of this one country, two systems idea that was supposed to maintain itself for decades still to come. And so a lot of concern about what's happening in Hong Kong, and certainly it's, it's rather alarming as well to see some of the what are almost farewell messages being posted online by some of the uh, the activists in Hong Kong who have been trying to to resist this law and the changes it represents. So is it a done deal? Uh, how dire is this for those last vestiges uh, of autonomy and, and democracy that do exist in Hong Kong? Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts on the situation, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Sarah Cook. Uh, Senior Research Analyst for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House, freedomhouse.org. Also directs the China Media Bulletin, uh, providing uh, insight and analysis on developments related to China. Sarah, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to join. Uh, from your uh, assessment, your point of view, is is this as bad as, as it appears? It, it's pretty bad. And I'm generally, you know, kind of an optimistic person, and I try to find... You know, the, the silver lining, even in the various egregious things that the Chinese Communist Party will do. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is pretty bad, even by Chinese stand, by Chinese Communist Party standards. I mean, just if you're looking at the process, in addition to the content of the law, the fact that it was um, drafted, adopted, and essentially almost pretty much put into effect in Hong Kong within days, um, and put into effect only an hour after the actual text of the law was made public, uh, is is appalling and even sinks lower than uh, the usual low standards of of rule of law in China. Even in China, laws usually have public comment periods, uh, and then there's a gap of time between when it's promulgated and coming into effect. But this was really uh, really just done overnight. What is China's pretense for for doing this and for moving so quickly? well, I think on the surface, the pretense is, is to say that the protest movement last year, um, you know, were, were violent terrorists and, and rioters and a national security threat uh, to Hong Kong. And other governments uh, have various national security laws and provisions. So, you know, why are you criticizing us? And that's pretty much what the Hong Kong, the Beijing picked uh, chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, said, um, you know, in, in comments in, in the last couple of days. Uh, but I, I think the real reality is that um, Beijing just really felt that the Hong Kong government uh, could not handle the pro-democracy movement. And that is, you know, that really, I mean, what's so sad about this is that 
uh, the Hong Kong government in Beijing created this problem for themselves. I mean, it was kind of a slow strangling, and people were really concerned over the reducing, slowly reducing autonomy in, in Hong Kong. And then the Hong Kong government introduced this extradition law that would effectively you know, put people in Hong Kong at risk of being sent back to China and subject to Chinese criminal law. And that's what sparked the protest movement, which then involved into much larger demands yeah. and initially was com- pretty much completely peaceful. And then when, you know, even millions of people took to the streets and there still wasn't a, a concession on the part of the government. Um, and again, there from the beginning, there were all these weird procedural violations compared to how things are usually done in Hong Kong as a rule of law society. Uh, and the sad thing is now basically Beijing has done what even worse. Uh, than what many people feared with the with the extradition law. It's basically like this basically brings Chinese law and Chinese criminal law and Chinese secret police and Chinese surveillance and everything that that encapsulates into Hong Kong. Right. So it, it sort of makes the idea of extradition a moot point because they can now do all of this in Hong Kong. They can do it in Hong Kong, and it's not entirely clear from the wording yet, and I think we'll have to see, but there are mentions of, like, Chinese jurisdiction. So it's not entirely clear would Chinese jurisdiction just be imposed in Hong Kong, but there's be- or, or, or would it be that there would be some selection of people who could just basically be taken back to China? Um, because they actually say, it says explicitly that in specific, quote, very serious cases, which, of course, can be completely arbitrarily determined, um, uh, that, that Chinese jurisdiction and Chinese criminal procedure law would apply. Um, and so, again, that's one of the really scary things in terms of the fact that beyond even the specific crimes listed here, there are all kinds of crimes in China's criminal law um, related to, um, you know, quote, um, you know, that, that basically peaceful protests, religious groups like whether they're Falun Gong practitioners or Christians uh, get sentenced under. Um, and so the question is, you know, are, is, that, is that law now going to take it to effect in Hong Kong? Even though Hong Kong has a basic law, it's actually, you know, under technically supposed to follow the the IC, the international covenant on civil and political rights which china is not necessarily didn't ratify uh, so it's just it's just two very very different legal systems and basically that gap is being changed or essentially how some hong kong lawyers have put it there's going to be a parallel system set up and you can be pulled into that parallel security system pretty much arbitrarily for for however these vague provisions are interpreted so is it too fatalistic to, to view this as an end of the, the um, you know, the one country, two systems approach? Or is that pretty much where we're at? Um, I, I think, unfortunately, that's really where we're at, because basically, like, a, you know, essentially, uh, this is very much closing the gap um, by, you know, what the, the, the underpinning foundation of one country, two systems, even though, you know, China's want to admit that, that people in Hong Kong don't want their system, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's basically the rule of law and civil liberties, like freedom of religion and freedom of speech, political organization. In Hong Kong, you can organize a political party. Uh, you can run for office as an opposition figure. Um, but you can't do that in China. And now, basically, you know, there's it's a real question of, well, which are going to be the permitted political parties, which are not? What kind of political speech is going to be allowed if you're running as a candidate, which is not? We already had some as- aspects of that, but, but now you see the Mestizo, the kind of student movement and political organization that Joshua Wong, the very prominent activist that helped found, uh, basically disbanded. Yeah. Because they just feel like it's just too risky to them and to their members. Now, Joshua Wong said, I'm going to still keep fighting for Hong Kong's freedom. But to have that kind of organizational structure uh, is, is going to be very risky. And, and so uh, those are all the kinds of things you can't have in China. Um, and let alone things like, you know, 
you know, people like myself, or people like groups like Freedom House being able to interact, being able to provide funding with, being able to support uh, openly uh, groups in Hong Kong, being able to travel to Hong Kong. None of that is going to be possible now. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's a really, really uh, closing of, of the gap uh, in terms of the level of, of freedom uh, of, of people in Hong Kong to, compared to China. What do you think this now means for those activists, those those organizations or those media outlets uh, who have been critical uh, of China in the past or have been supportive uh, of autonomy and democracy? How worried should we be about them? Um, I, I think we're going to have to see some of them, people like Jimmy Lai, who owns was a, a, one of the few millionaires, uh, wealthy individuals in Hong Kong that's been very supportive of the of the pro-democracy movement and uh, and owns one of the media outlets that's very popular in Hong Kong and Taiwan and is very critical of the Communist Party. Uh, he's already facing some uh, charges related to the protests. Um, and so we'll have to see where that goes. But I, I think I think a lot of people are kind of trying to strategize now and figure out, you know, what are some of the ways that we might be able to, you know, safely continue uh, to act and to expose um, what's going on and to follow it uh, without unnecessarily, uh, you know, tripping over over this law. One of the problems and one of the things that Beijing did really deliberately here is that they've really reduced the space for judicial review too. So a key institution that's created under this law is this new uh, national security um, committee. And it's basically going to be secretive, and that's explicitly said. Um, and it's not going to be subject to judicial review. And it's going to be appointed by the Hong Kong government, but with a Beijing advisor. So you can imagine what this committee is going to be like. And, you know, so then what happens? So if you're a media outlet and you're reporting about this committee and what it's doing, are you then going to be subject to repercussions? So I think part of it is going to be to see how far, at least initially, the Hong Kong government and the Beijing government go in really implementing the law. Carrie Lam has made repeatedly the point saying, claiming that this is only going to affect, quote, a minority of Hong Kongers, that international business shouldn't be worried, that maybe international media shouldn't be worried. It's very hard to see why they would promulgate this, why would they would enact it so quickly, and why they would do this if they're not going to actually use it um, and use it, you know, against, you know, a potentially large number of people, but also if not just a significantly uh, influential number of people, uh, subset of people. And that's certainly one of the tactics we see in China, where when they really wanted to cow social media, they basically went after some of the really influential personalities on social media who were being carefully critical of the government. Uh, so you could see that. You could see that numerically, you know, it's, it's several thousand people, which is a lot. <laughs> okay. But, you know, percentage-wise, out of 7 million people in Hong Kong, maybe it's not so much. But if those people are all journalists and media owners and, and democracy advocates and people trying to run for office, then that's going to have a, a, a profound ripple effect. Now, certainly, look, I mean, Western countries have, have criticized uh, China for taking this approach, and, and clearly that hasn't discouraged them. Uh, so waiting around for China to have a, a change of heart probably isn't uh, a strategy that's likely, likely to succeed. But I don't know. I mean, are, what, what options are there at this point? Well, I mean, I think there are a few options. I think one is, you know, really preparing properly for an outflow of an emigration wave from Hong Kong and mm. seeing... Um, you know, how to actually be able to help Hong Kongers that way. We've seen the U.K. take some steps that way. Certainly in 1997, a lot of Hong Kongers came to Canada. So I don't, you know, I don't know if that's on the table yeah. in Canada. Um, and that would really be unfortunate for Hong Kong. But I think, you know, for some of these people on an individual basis, on preserving, you know, people's freedom, 
uh, and ability to operate from exile, which is basically what activists from China do uh, and from a lot of other repressive countries. Um, so I, I think actually even just in other ways starting to think about and treat Hong Kong really much more as if it was part of China. And that goes to how you communicate with people in Hong Kong. Certainly a lot of them are taking precautions. How you think about your business transactions. I mean, in China, uh, you know, you see all kinds of situations where business disputes end up getting up with the foreigner getting arrested um, or, or facing charges on state secrets and things like that uh, in ways that just would never have been occurred to anybody that could happen in Hong Kong. And now that's a very real possibility in Hong Kong, even though until that happens, the Hong Kong and even maybe when it happens, the Hong Kong and Beijing governments are going to be very um you know, assertive and saying, no, it's, you know, this is still, we can still be an international financial hub. But I, I think, you know, for various people and in, in whatever their, their own sectors of society, uh, you know, really beginning to think about and treat a Hong Kong much more the way you would treat Shanghai uh, or Shenzhen or Beijing uh, is, is going to be really important, both for um, the viability of whatever you're doing in Hong Kong, uh, but also uh, the protection and safety of, of the people you're interacting with in Hong Kong. Right, Sarah, we got to leave it there. Much more at freedomhouse.org. Uh, really appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks for joining us here today. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, that is Sarah Cook, uh, Senior Research Analyst for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House, freedomhouse.org. So very worrying indeed what's happening this week in Hong Kong. Our number here, 403-974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.